Welcome to episode four of Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. I'm joined by Tiana and Rhea. Hey. Hi. You gotta say hi to the yeah, people. Here. Acknowledge Sorry. them. Hi, people. They're here to listen to you. Hi, people. <laughs> hi, people. Uh, Jason is not with us today due to scheduling conflict. Um, I'm not unconvinced that it's not because he's completely, totally awkwardly weirded out by the show, especially after this episode yeah. with the doctor scene. I can only imagine that. Even there, there are multiple scenes that while I was watching, I was like, oh, poor Jason. Yes. He's going to struggle with this one. Yes. Well, uh, hopefully we'll have Jason back next week. He told me it was because he was booked all weekend. Um, we'll see if that's true. So we uh, want to thank some people. We want to thank everybody who's been downloading the podcast. Things have been going very well. It's sort of weird having them out there now. Like, you know, you do a thing and you work on it and then all of a sudden, like, it's out there for the people. It's strange. And so, Free in the world. But, but it's doing well. We're getting positive reception. Uh, the social media has been going well. So thank you to everybody who's been listening to it. And uh, always feel free to let us know what you think, as long as it's good. Uh, we have an interview with Lauren Hook of the Feminist Press this week. That went really well. Uh, Rhea helped me out with that because I wanted some good questions because Rhea is a more of an academic type person. And they are uh, based out of a City University of New York. Yes. I'm pronouncing that right and doing yeah. all that in order. You are. Uh, so that went really well. She was awesome. We talked about all kinds of stuff that they have going on and some uh, new books and kind of the state of things and different uh, feminist topics as they relate to the current reality. So that was nice. Uh, we will also have Hardcore Lady Quotes coming up later in the show. Everybody seems to uh, really enjoy that feature. And so that will return and will be a weekly thing. So let's do a brief uh, recap, kind of where we left off. With Offred, we know where we left off in the show. The last scene of the sh- episode three was Avglen in the hospital, and we know where that goes. We do not see any Avglen this week, so we do not know what has become of her post-surgery mutilation, is what we're calling it. There's an NPR article this morning about terminology and female genital mutilation versus cutting, with a woman who's in charge of, I think, a rehab clinic talking about. Um, the idea that mutilation is her preferred term, but then for some of her patients, because they don't want to feel mutilated, they use mm-hmm. cuttings to not refer themselves as kind of right. undone. Or, that makes sense. Or, or, like, which I hadn't even thought of. It was yeah, really that's very interesting. So different term- to terminology that. for the victim versus yes. the outside looking in, I guess. Yeah, totally. Like how we don't um, refer to, you know, victims generally as like damaged anymore. Yeah, And that yeah. used to be like a really commonly yeah. uh, referred to thing. Words matter, friends. Words matter. That is correct. Uh, so, as far as Offred went, the last time we saw her, she had just revealed to Serena Joy that she was indeed not pregnant, and Serena Joy responded by uh, throwing her in her room and telling her to stay there uh, until she can come out, I guess, which, when we open up the show this week, we learn has been 13 days, I believe. So, that is where we uh, picked up. But um, first, let's talk about those first three, because I, I found this interesting. I did not uh, know this until this week, that... Those three episodes were directed by the same woman, and so they were. It kind of makes sense that they were all released kind of at the same time. They did have very much the same vibe about them. You could tell that they were all kind of going in the same direction and had the same uh, general influence around them. Uh, the director's name was Reed. Is Reed Moreno, and um, she did this week. The reason I wanted to bring her up is because we talked last week about how it was very. The last scene, at least, was very Kubrick esque. In its starkness and strangeness and just the overall feel of it. And there was an article this week about her, and she talked about how Kubrick was one of her influences. And so this is really the first, uh, one of the first things that she's been a director of. And so I I can't imagine she's going to get less work because of this, because those first three episodes were absolutely incredible. And the direction was fantastic, so kudos to her. So those three episodes kind of stand alone, and I looked to see what was coming up and the next two were directed by the same person and then two more after that and I think it's two for everybody until the last episode I believe uh, this week's was directed by a man named Mike Barker so this is our first um, direction by male which is interesting I wanted to see if you guys had any thoughts on that as a as women watching a show about this kind of stuff directed by a man and written by a man now well I like the purposefulness Both. I think maybe of of centering women, but also not making it only women. And the idea that men have important like parts of the conversation to enter into, but let's put a woman first and then rotate. I'm, I'm assuming for the rest of the episodes it'll be 
not just men. Yeah, I did not look to see the rest of them. I just looked for these Something kids, at some so. point said that they were being very conscious about trying to mix it up women's perspectives and then mix it up a little bit after okay. that. Because so. we did have a definite um, vibe change, for sure, from the first three episodes to this one. This was very much more of a, I don't want to say traditional, but it was more of a slow burner mm-hmm. as opposed to the first three episodes where you kind of got like a shock value out of almost all of those. Uh, that was not so much the case this time. It was very well done, and especially I would say the doctor's office scene was really well done, as creepy as it is. Um, I just the way they shot it with behind the screen and the whole thing was I thought really cool. Um, but yeah, definitely was, a tone change. Yeah, I was not aware that it was a man directing this one as opposed to the first three that was a woman. Um, so I kind of chalked up all of the tonal differences to where we're at in the story, and it felt much more. It reminded me of more of, like, The Americans. I don't know if anybody here watches that show. I have not. Um, it's very, like, methodically paced and a slow burn, and it really felt a lot like that, where, like, there are a lot of things happening. You are getting a lot of information and a lot of, like, sub-storylines right. going on. Like, the doctor situation is kind of, like, its own, like, weird mindfuck situation. And, like, you're getting a lot of flashbacks to something that is slightly different than it was in the book. And... You're, you're just getting a lot of information, but it's at a relatively slow, measured pace, so it's kind of doled out evenly throughout the episode, as opposed to the, like, quiet and super slams of shock that have been happening in the first three, where it's, it's more abrupt. It's a good point stops. that they were kind of tonally, the first three, you kind of got these long periods, and then you got this BAM mm-hmm. thing, so it was kind of yeah. like... It, like it, was like, it was like a creeping sense of dread in the first three, yes. where, like, you have a lot of time to, like, think about what is happening, and, like, dread what might be coming or what this might mean. And in episode three or episode four that we just saw, I feel like it was more, everything was so drenched with meaning and subtext that you were just like constantly thinking about it. And I wonder if that had to do totally with where we're at in the show. Like she's been in this room for 13 days. So it's just this long mm-hmm. period of time. So, and you know, for her, it's kind of yeah. this period of time where you just kind of, that's true. Everything's methodical. I haven't and, thought about that. But you know. maybe that's what she's thinking. And I think part of it is she's in this place where she's trying to decide how much of a rebel she wants to be. And you get a much stronger sense in the show that she has a history of being more of an activist or more outspoken or more inclined to go against the green. Not as much as Moira. Uh, but that scene, we get her trying to escape in a way that she did not in the book. In the book, I think she's much right. more hesitant. And in the show, I think we have this this figure of this woman who is showing us what it means to process what kind of a person do you want to be? Do you want to go against the grain or do you want to just make things easy for yourself? Well, I got a little bit of the opposite vibe as far as she's always been a rebel. Only because, and this might just be oh, no, the situation yeah. she was in, because like when she's in the bathroom scene where uh, Moira has the uh, shiv, I guess is it a shiv? Anyway... They've created the uh, knife-like device out of the thing that got off the toilet. And June is telling her, don't do that, you know, and all this stuff. So she seemed to me at that point like more of a, let's not get caught, let's not get in trouble. Let's not lose a hand. But I think she's like a follower activist, right? Like she's still willing to go along with it. She's still friends with Moira. She still goes on that escape route. So you're right. Moira is clearly like the most rebellious. Right. But she doesn't say like, well, we're not friends anymore if you, you know, keep doing this kind of stuff because I'm a true believer and I'm going to go back and... Or... Yeah, I think I think her perspective at that point in the story seems much more like probably most women would be like, this is totally fucked up. I want to get out of here, but like, I'm not willing to risk losing my hand just to carve something on a bathroom stall wall. Like, that doesn't seem important enough to risk. Well, and how does that, do you think, reflect on sort of this, especially today and the current political climate, we have all these marches and all these protests that there's very little consequence for, per se. So what does that say about kind of a reflection on today's society where you have all these people who are protesting all these things, but would they still be out there protesting as hard or as loud if there were guys with machine guns mowing them down or there was, you know, you were going to get your hand cut off? I think that was kind of interesting to think about just from a modern-day, our current time perspective. Yeah, in... In relation to that, in modern day perspective, I think like a lot of women are willing to go out and march, but they're less willing to speak up publicly in front of your coworkers when you see something happening that's unacceptable at work because like that'll have direct ramifications on your life and your career. 
Um, and, you know, say something in public when you see something inappropriate happening or stand up to somebody in your life who is kind of abusive. I think a lot of people, not just women, are just way less willing to do something when they know it's going to have negative consequences in their own lives. But like marching makes you feel good and makes you feel like you're taking a stand, even though it essentially achieves not a lot. Right. There's a privilege element there too, right? There are things mm-hmm. that I can do and risks that I can take as a white woman that women of color cannot because the consequences with that for them would be so much more severe than they would be for me. Um, and so I think about for, for June, Pri, she's kind of stuck in that balance and wondering how much do I want to use that and how much do I not, right? How much am I willing to risk and how much am I not? And that seems to be a lot of where we are now. And if you look at the marches where there were severe consequences, where people were arrested or beaten or maced or all those things, you see a lot more people of color than you do white people. So yeah. there's there's a racial element that I wish the show had decided to tackle, but I understand that maybe they didn't want to take on so much at one time. Um, but I think that I read somewhere that it's unrealistic that a society like this would be as racially, I guess, unconscious as they're trying to be. Um, That if they were, if they were, you know, male supremacists, they probably also would have been white supremacists and you wouldn't have seen that kind of unmentioning of race that we see so far. Yeah. I think they definitely have gone with the theory that like fertility trumps everything in the show, which is totally not what happened in the book. And I think I'm grateful for that in that, like, I'm not distracted by the lack of minorities because I think that would have been super visually weird to see. But it also does make you think, like, that seems a little crazier. (laughs) It seems less likely that they would only hate or only try to oppress one subset of people instead of many subsets that don't fit into their, like, perfect ideal. I think what I was reading, I'm trying to think if it was Margaret Atwood that said it, or I think it was, because it was one of those articles talking about the difference between the show and the book, was that between 1985 and now, when she wrote the book, that society has been so much more integrated with, you know, interracial marriages and all that stuff, that it would have been almost impossible for them to weed that out, so it almost wouldn't be worth it. You just, you know, if they're going to oppress people, just take what you have and just do it. So I think that's probably why that creatively was made. Although I haven't noticed they haven't, when you're seeing the powerful men yeah. so far, you only see little glimpses of a group of powerful men. They are all white dudes. And the wives were all white, right? All of the wives we've seen so far have been white. Yeah. I will say that when the opening shot of the doctor's office scene, when they're in the waiting room and they have the pictures of the wives... And the commanders up on the wall mm-hmm. at the hospital. Mm-hmm. There are several African American. Oh yeah. There's really? also yeah. I'll talk about. This, there's also one woman who doesn't have a man with her in a picture, like in the in the oh, bottom row, crazy. just a single wife holding the baby. Which I was like, can you do that? Yeah. I don't know because I don't I know the think, rules. I, I didn't think get that my. She would immediately be given to another man. In this right, society. and I didn't get my Gilead handbook, so I have no idea. It's in the mail. You know, if, if that's that that's a thing or not. So I thought that was interesting. But, okay, let's do a uh, deep dive into the various things that we did see in episode four. So we open up and we got a flashback scene with the carnival. That was really sad to me. Like, I don't know why yeah. this one got me more than anything, just because I think everybody's been there and you remember that, like, either you were a kid and went with your parents or you have a kid and you went with that. And it's like a carnival is like the most chaotic, you know, free event that you probably one of those that you participate because it's just kind of all about pleasure and all about you know doing whatever you want eating ridiculous food and just everything right everything on a stick and so uh, she's in the room has been now for 13 days and is just having this flashback it was really just sad and it was just like a really downer way to start this episode so she's been in there for 13 days uh, the door is unlocked, which she makes a mention of, which she says, I think, is shows you who is really in control, because she can't leave, even if she wanted to, when she has the ability to run, there's nowhere for her to go. prison without bars. Correct. So, she starts wandering around the room, this is when she goes to the closet, and finds the, uh, or the word scrawled in Latin down on the bottom of the floor, uh, which is Nolites te bastardis carborundrum, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, she talks about a previous offred. And that there's someone who was there before me. I remember thinking about almost um, 
like a Rebecca parallel, the novel that Rebecca, where she's haunted, she's living in this, it's a gothic um, novel, and she's living with her new husband. You never find out this woman's name. Um, you only know that she knows that there was a, a Mrs., what is it? I don't, I don't remember the name now, a Mrs. So-and-so before her, and oh. she can never live up to that standard. And so she's just haunted by this woman whose ghost is with her, not in kind of corporeal sense, but the idea that you you will come after someone who will set the tone for what you are and who you can be. Uh, I think she's trying to come to terms with that, really. Thinking about the the suicide, but then also knowing that this woman has left some kind of legacy for her. Um, so we do get another flashback, and this is the bathroom oh, scene that we... what? Before that, you yeah. go right from that scene, I think, to where the commander and Serena Joy are talking. Is that later? That's later. Oh, okay. It's after the flashback. They do a flashback to the bathroom scene where they are... Oh, yeah. Uh, Moira has fashioned the shiv uh, out of the toilet rod from inside the toilet tank. I know if you've read the book, you know that they... that Now, you were saying, because I didn't remember, yeah. that it was slightly different in the book. That, it's just Moira in the book. And I yeah, don't, you don't get a you, sense either way that she's trying to talk her out of it or into it. You just you just hear, here's what Moira tried to do, and she fails the first She didn't time. know. She do, You learn in the book that Offred only knows this third hand. She heard it from somebody that this is what happened to oh, Moira yeah. because she just showed up one day in the in the Red Center like she woke up one day and like Moira was no longer there. But the first attempt and they didn't came know. back. Yes, so the first attempt that's was true. failed. The I first think. attempt, I think the feet thing happened yes, to Moira, tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Rhea mentioned that earlier, and I couldn't remember because it's been yeah. a little bit since I read it. Uh, so we get back to the closet, at which she, I think this is the last scene before we do see Serena Joy and the commander, and she just thanks the previous offered for writing that down, that you must have been very brave to do this, because yeah. even scrawling words in a closet on the floor is forbidden. Yeah, like where did she get something to do that with? It exactly. Was crazy. So we go back to Serena Joy and the Commander, and this is kind of the first long interaction we see with them in the show, which is kind of nice. As much as you want to hate Serena Joy, and we probably still will hate Serena Joy overall because she's mostly terrible. She's still, she hasn't been called Serena Joy no, yet, No, she's right? not We're been called using, anything yet. Yeah. yeah, just Mrs. Waterford. Mrs. Waterford. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to that when we get to the Serena Joy backstory to see which direction I don't know they if they're going to have it. She's so young. I don't know how they would make it work. got to be something because... You can tell yeah. that she's got a... I was thinking about that a lot in this scene. So in the book, uh, for listeners, I don't know if we covered this before, Serena Joy, the character of Mrs. Waterford, was kind of... It sounds like she was kind of like a television preacher's wife kind of before, and she was right. very eccentric and like, you know, drenched in heavy cake makeup Tammy all the time. Baker, yeah. yeah, very Tammy Faye Baker. And um, she was really a big proponent of women staying at home and doing the home things. And um, she was sacrificing herself by, like, going around and being famous and talking to all these people about how women should be at home. Like, I'm not able to do this because I have to be here. (laughs) Yeah, 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 very Very much. Very much. And um, it's it's a big point in the book when they say she must have been so shocked when they took her at her word. That's my favorite line in the whole book. And that really hit home to me in this scene in this episode where she sounds, because the commander is talking about, she just asked, like, a how's it going kind of conversation because he's working on a laptop. Uh, yes, yes we shocking. didn't talk yeah. about that. was my yeah. first shocking. note was yeah. that Same we here. talked about the ear tags Same and here. tracking them and did they have technology? And I was like, well, I have to imagine that at least they do, the right. commanders. And so it was nice to see that he's got the laptop with the internet and the whole deal. So It was very jarring. Yeah. but she, So he is, mentioning, he is talking a little bit about um, the EU and um, an embargo, which you have to assume is it's Gilead being embargoed. Right. Um, and they're talking, about the, they're talking about the Euro and the European Union. And it was just very today, yeah. and very prescient. I was yep. like, whoa, oh, God, yeah, this is supposed to be like very near future to now. I forgot. And um, Serena Joy makes a comment and asks a question where she sounds very intelligent and with it and like engaged and plugged into what is happening in the world. Right. And she made, I can't remember exactly what she said. Well, she, she asked a very were, intelligent question was, and he shut it down so right. fast. Well, they he was were like, talking, we've, got, we've got great men working on this. And she just. And that word specifically, no, we've got, yes. I think it's now not people, we have great people on that. Men. We've got great men on that. Yeah. So it's just funny because. Because she's not allowed to read either. News. That, that's true. And so he was just like, oh, you know, all the terrible things and everything in the worst light. And you're thinking, what good what light is the good is light? There? Yeah, what is, so he, what is the good light? You just got to think understand. you're in a situation where when you're involved in that, and it's... Rhea and I had a conversation the other day where we were talking about uh, various religions and how from the outside looking in, sometimes people think that all the one religion... Like if you're talking about Islam, I think people, if they don't think about it long or hard enough, get this impression that 
all of Islam is the same, or all the Catholics mm-hmm. are the same. And mm-hmm. there, if you have been, we were talking about being Baptist and being raised in a Baptist church, you know to a great degree that there are your hardcore people. And then mm-hmm. as you work out from that circle, it gets yeah, less and less. Different. And, you know, it's all different. Or even not less and less, but just different, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. when you look at Orthodox Jews or Reformed Jews, there's a big movement in the Reform movement to say we're not less Jewish, right? We're just right. differently Jewish. Than right. right. That's a good point. That's a good point. You can see her wheels kind of start spinning, and that's the first point where she actually tries to kind of interject and do something as a woman in this society, and she's like, well, we need to do this, and we need to smear her and, mm-hmm. you know, talk about talking bad about her so that they discredit her. She says the, the thing that you do is you don't, you don't even acknowledge the content of what you said. You, you attack her. And then people, then you start to think that's how they did it, right? Is they, they started to malign people and made people less than human rather than saying, yeah. oh, you're right, we should consider what are human rights and the actual ideas behind their message. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating too because that is what happens in politics today. That is exactly That is exactly right how now. the game is played. You go after the individual and discredit them. I mean, this we see this everywhere in our society right now. It happens online when people are just having a very public fight. We see this in courtrooms that's what you do. You discredit the witness. My impression of the commander, too, is that he really sees himself as as a part of a subset of this society that doesn't need the same kind of regulations that the rest does. And that's why I think he can have this cognitive dissonance of breaking the rules and creating the rules well, I, at the same time. As I if think, like the rules are not for him. Yes, well, exactly. like those yeah. people need that because they don't have the brain power that I do and they don't have the self-control that I do. And if everybody did what I did, it would be mass chaos. But I know that I can do it and mm-hmm. still have the power to get up in the morning and you know be a productive human being. So we have to take that option away from them but it's okay if I do it because right. I know that it all. And, no, and you see that that's kind of your people in power story where it's, well, much. I can do that because I know how to do it. And, very and, much, yeah. Very, yeah, and that's very much how it is in this story too, yeah. which we'll see later on when they get to the party, which is going to happen at some point. The next thing we get is uh, Han, or the Martha brings breakfast up to uh, Offred and she's passed out on the floor. Uh, so then they decide that they're going to send her to the doctor because tonight is ceremony night. And we got to have things prepped, and as the doctor would say, in fighting shape for ceremony night, which I thought was a fantastic choice of words and terrible. So there, there is a point part before the before they leave where the Martha comes in and tells Serena Joy, and she's like, "Oh, what did she do this time?" Which is just goes back to this parent-child thing because yeah. she talks to her, and every time they interact, or every time they, that she's mentioned, it's such this disdain or like a disappointed mother, and like, "Oh, what did she do now?" And so they finally do decide to send her. And the commander actually sounds like, what happened to her? Like, he's, like, very concerned. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, especially happening so closely after the situation in which we see him totally shutting down her having an opinion on world events. Is This is a, this is apparently a situation where she has all the power. I definitely got the impression that, like, the commander does not get say over really what happens to the handmaid. Like, she, he can control his wife, but he has he is not supposed to be directly controlling the handmaid because he's supposed to be uninvolved in that i think relationship you know he's yeah they're not supposed they're, to see each other the only for... way that they have relationship is for the ceremony right. and then that is it he is completely uninvolved in like the running of the house which would include managing the handmaid and so it made me think like is is she extra especially right in this moment extra angry because she just her one power has been yeah. kind of overridden by his. Well, yeah, and and she had you know she had thoughts and ideas and was just completely shut down. Like, is she still kind of reeling from that? And so she's taking it out on Alfred's situation. There's a line in the book, and I think it's at the the conference at the end, but I can't remember about if very little power is available, then people will grab whatever they can or something yeah. like that. And that's what I think very about much. Serena Joy, right? That if her only power is to control Alfred, and yeah. she's just that's what slammed her in the face with this getting shut down by the commander that then she's more likely to to grab as much as she can in other ways yeah and no wonder i mean that's she's she she is also in a cage it is just a prettier cage she is just as trapped as the handmaid gilded cage nice moving on to the doctor's visit and so we get a little interaction with Nick because Nick has the driver. And I thought one of the interesting things that they made a point of showing was Serena Joy rolling up the partition. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of gives you in the back of your head is like, do they, does she know that something is going on that Nick is not really on the level of being 
all in for the cause of Gilead. And that, is he? But we don't know, we right? Don't know. There's so many things you don't know. This you know, I was curious there, too, about the red curtains in the car. And if that's, like, maybe the curtains are blue and Serena Joy is in the car. Or Ooh, or I never thought about that. Weren't the curtains red in the van? Marker? They were, but this the isn't the van. This no, no, it's the car. But so just, it would only ever oh, yeah, be, be only their there. car. Yeah, I don't know. So I, something I want to watch out for in the future. To yeah, the coloring is, the symbolism of the coloring is interesting. Now we're flashing back to the red center. Uh, where they're learning about the ceremony. I love this scene because it was completely freaking weird. And uh, it's just interesting because you, you never knew like at what point did they learn about it and how did that process go. So it was interesting to see their take on that. Uh, so we get a little interaction between Moira and Aunt Lydia because it finally clicks with Moira that, oh, we're going to be having sex with the commanders yeah. too. Because at this point, they don't, they, none of them really knew what are we even doing? Like, and in, the in, the, in the bathroom, they talk scene. about the turkey baster with the old man jizz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that sounds like if we were imagining, you know, being yeah. in their shoes, you have no idea what's coming. That does seem like the logical way to go. The most expedient. Yeah. Yes, the most the most effective with the least amount of you know chance for error, I guess. <laughs> so they kind of get into the positions. Moira asks that question and Aunt Lydia, you can tell is, I couldn't tell if she was just annoyed by the question being asked or if she referred to it as intercourse. If that was a banned word. Cause I don't it know. It seemed like she was like Moira was really making an effort to ask a question in a way that she would get an answer rather than provoke the aunts from punishing her or something. Like she really just wanted to know. Yeah. Um, but and yeah, Lydia's and just Lydia, waiting for the sun to come was, back or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she does give her that little kick with the foot because her foot's yeah. hanging off the bed. So kind of maintaining her, you know, power oh. strength position. Uh, so they are like, uh, one thing that caught me was when they were going through the positioning and they said holding the wrists. And it just kind of like made me really like sick-ish. Like yeah. to think about the fact that why are they holding their wrists? Is it because if they try and fight back that they can't go anywhere? Is well, and also a, probably to make it like a like the opposite of romance. Yeah, I mean, well, the whole thing, the way they do it is the opposite of romance. Yeah, but I mean, it's definitely in the wives' interest to make sure that this is as like sterile an experience as possible. Yeah. And yet to connect so that they feel like they have some kind of physical connection. Yeah, with well, happening. yeah, like the fake yes. birthing. Yeah, yeah, the fake birthing. Yeah. So this goes right into that where they're like yeah. they're there and they're kind of in the same position, but they're not really in the same position. Of that, and they tell the Rachel and Jacob story after Moira asks because that's kind of how they uh, relate back. Because it is the Rachel and Leah Center, yeah, Mm -hmm. is what the Red Center is called, and I believe is Leah was the handmaid. No, No, that was the handmaid. Oh, that's right. So Rachel and Leah are both wives. Okay, gotcha. Okay, Rachel was the one who couldn't get pregnant. Gotcha. Yeah, did you notice that um, in that scene in the flashback to the Red Center, the woman whose hands. June needed to hold like she was missing half a finger. Oh no, I didn't notice no. that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, and that just made me think, like, oh god, how common is the mutilation of the other parts of their body? That seems like Ooh. such a well, it's you know, and it was healed. It had been a while. They do not seem to uh, hold was, back. I think it was a middle finger, so off. I was immediately like, what could she have done to lose Stuff. just half of one finger? Did she like flip one of the aunts the bird or maybe, something? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. And I did like the uh, other. They kind of throw in some different personalities with the hand. Maids, like the mm-hmm. one girl that's like chewing on her fingernails, yeah. and Aunt is like, Get your hands out of your mouth, yeah. and losing it. And yeah, they, you can tell that they makes them seem like normal people. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that's really cool that they did that instead of kind of not giving them a personality, which is kind of easy to do in a scene like that. Yeah, and you don't get personality group. of the other handmaids in the book because that's you're true, just, because you're it's all only you're in, in off her head, so like you know Offer very well, and you know some of Moira, but not to this extent. And then great Aunt Lydia line with uh, that is his word, dear, and we shall abide. And you're just like, Ugh. So we get to the doctor's office. First thing I noticed, as we talked about earlier, was the uh, pictures of the commanders and their wives and the kids. But that I did notice, because I was looking for it, that there was some people of color, African-American guy for sure with a wife, and then the one random single wife, which really threw me off. So I would be really interested to see if that's ever addressed again, or if that was like an Easter egg where it's like a nod to somebody produced on the show, like... Single person with a baby. I don't do we know. Ever get DVDs of Hulu shows. Like, when do we get the? It's a good question. I don't know if they that do seems or not. Like the opposite of what uh, Hulu would do. I like know, it's a, but it's I miss. They should have some behind the scenes extra edition, stuff. You know, turn yeah. on the comments while you watch the episode. Yeah, if you look feature. on the channel, they do have underneath like where the episodes are. They have some extra feature stuff. Oh. So I don't know if they'll address that. Like as the episodes oh, go, yeah, they'll I put some. Because yeah, I just thought that caught me off guard. I just noticed that today watching it for the second time. I didn't notice the single woman. I was like. 
that's very strange. So that'll be interesting to see if they ever come back to that again. So doctor's office scene is probably direction wise, I think uh, my favorite scene of the whole thing, just the way they did it and stupid me because this is not a doctor I go to. Um, and I don't think this is how I've been there because I've had a kid and well, I didn't have a kid. My wife had the kid. And so I had to go to the doctor with her. Uh, no screen involved. I think the screen is an invention of Gilead. It is, yeah. Right? That's not normal. And it took me a while, like, until he peeked his head around, I didn't realize that the screen was in between him and, like, at her, yeah, like, waist. So he can't see so her. So he can't see her and that they can't really see each other. And I was like, oh, because I just thought it was kind of, like, we were behind both of them, mm-hmm. way far back in the room. And so when he peeks his head around, I was like, oh, it's like right there. It's a partition. Okay, it's a partition. I did know who the guy was. The moment he walked in the room and started oh, yeah. talking. Oh, yeah. He's got a very distinctive voice for anybody that watches Orphan Black. Yes. He is an awesome character in Orphan he Black. Is that, like, at first you kind of loathe, but you grow to you love. You ever watch that show? No. Oh, oh, that is a tremendous show. We watch that show. My wife watches that show, and it, it's fantastic. And his character. So, for those of you that don't know about Orphan Black, very briefly, there is a lot of clones of this one woman. And so. There's a government program where they were created, and now something's screwed up, and now they're trying to kill all the clones. There's various... This woman, the same actress, plays all these characters. Um, but she, So she plays every version of this clone. And the one that he is the... This guy is the husband for is like this typical, like, suburban... Not typical. Not typical. Well, not in the she's end, but when you're first extreme. introduced to her, she's... Yeah, she's a very she extreme version very of, like, extreme. a suburban housewife, mom with the two mom. kids, soccer mom, doing stuff for the PTA. But, so like, that, times a million. Yes, yeah, so, like, like that on steroids. That is her character, yeah, and that's the role speed. she plays. I think it would be speed, not steroids, for sure. Okay. So this she guy does, is her husband, and he's great, because they get into all these ridiculous, violent ridiculous situations and he plays it like straight and he's like the doting husband who's like uh, and she's very much in charge you can tell that Mm -hmm. she is the suburban housewife that runs the show and so when i saw him walk in i was like oh he's gonna be great at this and so he peeks his head around i was like yes i knew that's who it was so he was was great to see him but i was also like oh damn i wish he were a bigger character yeah well you know what i mean was i think in the book spoiler alert major spoiler alert here he the doctor gets caught and killed, right? I think so. I do believe because that. Because it's, it's suggested that he was the father of, of Warren's. Being. Oh, okay. I didn't know yeah. that. See, I don't remember that. I do remember that he got caught and because he, in this scene, is asking her, like, he comes in talking about his tomatoes, like a normal yeah. doctor's visit, like where they just talk about, you know, everyday kind of crap and try and, you know, talk to you. And you're just like, really? That was also pretty jarring as a reminder of, like, how normal life could be for men. Yes. Well, that's a good point. I did not... I just kind of forgot that, like, men could be leading basically normal lives well, in that's... this world because, you know, we only see the commander and in very limited situations and Nick, who is, like, not an important man um, in the society. So, like, he has a relatively limited life as well. But, like, this doctor, like, he grows tomatoes in his spare time in his garden. Like, that is something we do right now. Wow. And when I think the actress who plays Janine said something about the human rights issue, and it's not feminist because it's human rights, and she said there were men on the wall... Well, but then when you look at the rest of society, you know, you see the doctor wearing scrubs, but that's appropriate to his job. And the commander wears a uniform that we're, I guess... He wears a suit. That is, yeah, that is appropriate to his job. Um, But we don't think that they have to wear the same one or that... It's not required of them necessarily. Right. Or that... I don't picture the doctors going around town in their scrubs. They probably... Right. It's not the same as the one. So you do see, yeah, that even though the men still have serious controls and restrictions around what they can do, it's not the same intensity as I think the women. Yeah. They're very limited in scope, but it seems like less um personal limitations yeah. it's just limitations and like you know societal rules yeah so he does the the one line is you know he asks her i forget what he asked previous to this statement but he said you can talk to me like he asked how they're treating her how they're treating her and he's like you can talk to me and you're like i think going back to a star wars reference from earlier you're you got admiral akbar popping up your head going it's a trap and so everybody's just thinking, okay, is he really for real? Is he a spy for the eye? You know, so nobody, again, it's a whole, who do you trust? You can't trust anybody. And again, going back to what you said is about how rebellious do you want to try and be versus the consequences that could happen. And she really chooses not to at this point um, because she, you know, is fresh off a 13 day, (laughs) you know, solitary confinement more or less. And I guess mentally, that drains you. I mean, I wouldn't know, but you, you got to think that that would drain you. And so at this point, you're probably like, I just don't even have it in me to like try at this point to try and 
be subversive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what's interesting there is that she's in solitary confinement for not being pregnant, right? Like, that's the the entire thing that she did was to not be pregnant by a man who we learn probably is sterile. Because probably all these guys are, according to the doctor. So then you think... You can't be in the right kind of frame of mind laying in this room, this, you know, sterile white room, and, th- and think logically, well, maybe if I would just get pregnant, then I could move around. Right. And, and even if she did think about that, is it worth the risk right. that he is an eye? Yeah. You never know. And there's he an could, eye out in the other it's, room. It's, it's sound, it yeah. sounds like a trap. Yeah, your, uh, your, your nurses have been replaced by armed guards. <laughs> you, do you know what Creepy. to do? Yeah, Creepy. I got this. I'm good. Thanks. Please get out of here with the machine Guy, gun. could you imagine if some woman walked in and didn't know what to do? She had never been to the OBGYN before, oh. and that is the person that has to explain to her, like, this is how undressed you need to be. <laughs> this is where you get up. So, a couple things happen in this scene. He, he talks to her, trying to get her to talk to him. He says that he can help her later on, which means that... It maybe means, you don't know, but maybe means that he wants to help her get pregnant, because if they don't saying that Waterford is sterile. I think even if you haven't read the book, you know. But know what? That that's what he's referring to. Well, but in my head, being a guy, and just kind of think of it from a creepy guy standpoint, is he saying that to just try and have sex with her right now? Well, yeah. Or is he saying that to really try and help help. her? Yeah, fair Mm -hmm. point. Is it just creepy dude, doctor, that wants to have sex with this lady? Well, both. And I thought... Yeah, it probably is both. Yeah, I thought a lot about that too, but I also thought, like, this would be a prime situation where, like, he could rape her and there's nothing she can do about it. Oh, absolutely. And she would take the blame if they were caught. So, you know... If he was just trying to have sex, like, I would think that... He would just do it? Yeah, he would just do it. Well, and then the other thing, and this is really terrible to think about, but then I was like, he checked her out, you know, did the mm-hmm. whole deal, and I was like, did he even really need to do that? Um, I think he... Or was that just, again, creepy dude thing, like, I can do this, so I'm gonna do it? Yeah, I think he was just checking to make sure, because, oh, I know like, what he they're said. already there. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. But did he really have to? Uh, or was he just know. doing it? Well, Serena he could. Joy was expecting him to have. Yeah, but you can checked. say, yeah, he checked without him actually having to check. That just True. came out. There, there was some U.S. gymnastics news this week. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of U.S. gymnastics yes. news that is. But that the women good. of the 2000 Olympics team, I think their their trainer, one of their doctors, oh. has been like big... penetrating them without permission. Oh. Because once you get a vulnerable yeah. young woman, right, and you can take those liberties, and who will believe yeah. you if you say, you know, my doctor did this to me? So. Yeah. Another parallel of well, especially when reality. like you're in that situation, you're on the U.S. Olympic team, which is like probably the thing that you've worked harder for right. and you, the hardest for in your entire life is where you want to be. And again, rebellion versus yeah. ramifications. Cost benefit. Like as terrible as that is, and how awful that is for some That's man to take real. advantage of that situation and that mindset of some girl who's probably like twelve between twelve and fourteen at the earliest at the latest since they're coming into that that's just awful yeah we, we end that with her basically saying that she's not going to do anything with him and he picks up his stuff and pretty much leaves and she um, looking him. slightly disappointed i might yeah. add yeah, which also lended my credibility to yeah, kind of creepy dude uh we do we get the limo ride back which is another flashback back to uh, briefly to the carnival scene and then she just loses it in the limousine and just starts cursing and banging on the you know partition and Nick is kind of just, he doesn't really make a move. He kind of looks back, but doesn't, there's nothing really he can do. Yeah, he can't he, stop. He can take the long way home. Exactly. So she has more time. And so when they it. do get back, he he does like this total dude, like, I'm sorry. And she's like, you're sorry for what? What do you want to happen here? What do you want to do? He's like, I wish I could, you know, change your situation or doing something, he says. And she just like totally is like, get out of my face because you, there's nothing you could do. And you're just another man. Right now, especially in the show that is, like, trying to maybe help me. Do I trust you? It's just, it's all bad. And she, at this point, you can tell that having been through 13 days of solitary, going to the doctor who just tried to maybe help her. And she going back know. to solitary. She is being yes. driven back to yes. confinement. Yes. Extreme confinement. Extreme confinement. So now she's back there. And Serena Joy, she tries to apologize. Like, she goes through this, like, whole, like... Very little kid-esque thing again. I was like, no, I was bad, and I'm sorry, and it's all my fault. And you can tell she's like, at this point, she's just desperate not to have yeah. to go back to that room. What are the magic words I can say? <laughs> well, yeah. But and Serena Joy is having none of it, even though she, you do see her, that little acknowledgement where she's not doing, she stops doing the cross-stitch and kind of acknowledges that she's kind of either broken her or is kind of getting to her because she's apologizing to her and, you know, giving her a little bit of that power. Um... So then we 
flash back to the escape scene. And that the way they set it up is pretty much exactly like in the book. They mm-hmm. take off the ants outfit so that Moira can do it and put her basically tie her to the uh Pipe Which also solved another problem I had with the book, where I read that scene in the book, thinking like, "There is no way she would be able to do that by herself." No like, yeah, there's no true. way. That's true. Get another adult to take off her whole, all that's her clothes point. under threat, and then I, you have to put down your weapon to completely change her clothes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's true. I didn't think about that. That's a good. It point. seemed unlikely. So that, not that any of this seems <laughs> <laughs> not that please, most of the actual please. situations in this book seem super like so that part of the escape scene we just get to where they leave and that's kind of where it stops we go back and it's ceremony time and Fred comes in early hey Mr. Waterford how you oh, doing man. she's like kneeling on a pillow like you do I guess pre-ceremony yeah and she well, talks there's about a lot how, of kneeling on the pillows for the handmaids apparently so he comes in early and is trying to talk to her and says, hey, we should like have a our rematch person. and like, how you been? And she's, she's like, I'm going to get punched in the face if you don't right. leave. Like, and again, leave. she's like, he, he can't be here. And again, she can't talk to him. Like, that's the big thing later is that she says, I couldn't respond to him. Um, which she couldn't of, even be caught like looking at right. him. Right. And so he leaves. Serena, people start coming in. He's not even supposed to be there until the end. Of he doesn't leave. He just like walks, walks over out. to the mantle. Yeah. And again, he's the he's man. So the what, what consequences are there really the for room. him? None. None. And so then we do have awkward ceremony, or he comes so in before that. What? Before they get to the before they get to the actual awkward ceremony, mm-hmm. uh, Serena seems suspicious. Oh, she when, makes that comment about you're never early. Yeah, she says oh, like yes. who's the early bird today, and like when she sits down, I don't know what it is. Again, amazing silent acting from everybody in this show doing a great job, but her face is just saying so much about like why are you really early? Like this is so strange. And, and really, that's her worst fear. Right? Really suspicious about what's going on. Yeah, it's got to be that you know that I'm gonna get. I'm not only am I shut out because I can't produce the child, but I'm gonna get shut out because my husband's gonna have a thing with the handmaid. Like, right. Like what would happen to her? Could she be replaced? I don't understand, like, what would happen to a wife in that situation. It's got to be terrifying. Yeah, we don't know uh, what the rules are in Gilead yet. So, yeah, we have a don't worry about it, it happens to all the guys moment with Fred (laughs) um, trying to more... And I did have a thought right before this started. I was like, well, he has to get an erection for this whole thing to happen. How does that happen? Because... Unless there's some pre-show entertainment in the other room, which I don't think is allowed in Gilead, yeah. he, there's somebody. This has got to happen somehow, and so then you try to kind of see the, the the leading up to it, where he's like trying to work it mm-hmm. out himself, more or less. Yeah. Like, if there was really a society turned over where like men were completely dominating everything and all women were in subservient, dictated roles, there would totally still be it's porn so everywhere. Yes. There is yes. no way he would not have <laughs> a special porn room. Oh. Attached to the bedroom. Well, and knowing what happens no later, way. knowing what happens later with yes. the party that they go to yes. and like the secret stuff that goes on there, you're probably right. There's definitely porn in this world. Yeah. If there is still internet and men are in charge of everything, <laughs> there is porn. Yeah, good no point. And he pulls out magazines in the book too to give her like, "Ooh, do you want to look at this really old Newsweek?" And she's <laughs> like, yes. about that." And, she, and it's like, you think he'd at least have like a Sears catalog or something? Newsweek yes. is like the naughtiest <laughs> thing ever. Uh, he leaves the room. Serena Joy goes in there, and they kind of have this moment of she Very asks, "Can I help you?" And it's kind of the first kind of intimate moment they have together, where you can tell that she's kind of missing this, and they're both kind of missing that intimacy. And so she does try and help him, um, but he stops her, and then she he leaves and goes somewhere else. Yeah. And then she goes back in the room and tells boots out, boots off her it out, and says it's over. So that was super awkward and fun. Yeah, that situation was definitely like a who is this the worst for? You gotta, it's gotta it's be Serena. Jason, you know. Yeah, it's just <laughs> awkward Jason's for time. everybody. Yeah, I think it's gotta be the worst for Serena for sure. Uh, so then we flash back to this train scene, which kind of gives us our first post Gilead takeover view of the city as they're walking through it. People yeah. are taking bodies away, I was and they come up on this. Shocked they were. Yeah, they must have well, been so much must have changed while they were in the red center. Right, and you don't know how long they're in the red center. They don't really give you a uh, you know there are no red center signs or outline because when they walk out, they're like, where are we? Yeah. And really, and, you think it could have been as little as like a month because yeah, yeah I was really take, struggling right? with that. Has it been a long time, and that's why they're shocked, or are they shocked because it's been so fast? Yeah, I think they're shocked just because 
it's when like, they walk out, it's so starkly different than yeah. Because yeah, the I think buildings the, look weird with no signage on them. Right, like, and, it seems like a military industrial complex, right, but like could, you're clearly in the middle of an urban area. Right, and she's Moira makes point of like, where are the street signs? Where are mm-hmm. we? Like they can't even like it's their yeah. city. Yeah, that they you know they. So are, disorienting. Well, they think it's their city. Like they do make a point of saying that. Like oh, yeah, they couldn't have taken us very far. Oh, I think yeah. is what she says. But anyway, they're running. They're walking through the city, trying not to get caught because Moira is dressed up like the ant. And there's the men hanging from what I think is a. It's either like a water tower structure or a stadium. It's round, and so in between all the slots is a person. I, you would think they're all men hanging, and there's bodies being taken away. We see the burning of the art and various papers of some sort. Yeah. Probably anything non-religious. Very Berlin, like affiliated, yes, very. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. that was a fountain that they were using as a giant as a fire, giant like, fire pit. It was just yeah. really bizarre. Yeah, so basically, probably burning anything that doesn't fit the standards of mm-hmm. Gilead, and burning all the art and anything that you know is, could be subversive or lead to free thought. And can you imagine how long it would take to get rid of all of the materials they disagreed with? I mean, that's intense. That's like the contents of the vast majority of homes. Every store that is not absolutely necessary. The Fahrenheit 451 tie. It's yeah, like Fahrenheit so. 451. Well, even you look even nowadays, further. if you look at like the Taliban and yeah. ISIS, that's kind of that's what they do when they roll into places. Yeah, I but they're rolling into places that are not like America, like no, dense I, urban areas. I, I, in right? America. No, I. Well, the ISIS, they're rolling into cities and like pretty much rounding up everybody and then and then destroying destroying the, the house. That's true. Homes but, that's true but they just blow up the buildings. It's not the same. Not the printed material. It's but I remember like one of the first things when I think like, a, like pre, in Syria, they're just destroying the cities. Pre nine eleven, I think when we first started hearing a lot of Taliban stuff going on in Afghanistan, they were destroying these large like Buddhist yeah. statues that were, however many, a lot of years old. And so that was one of the things that I thought about was just. This stuff has happened, and Margaret Atwood did say, you know, there's nothing in this book that hasn't happened. Uh, Moira is trying to figure out which train do we go on, because you don't want to go to the wrong train. We want to go to the train to Boston, to GTFO. Uh, So Moira ends up getting on the train, because Offred kind of gives her this look like, you have this opportunity, go. I can't believe you're going to go without me, it kind of sucks. But she's like, I'm glad you're leaving. She had that look on her face, like, I'm glad you're getting out of here, someone is. And they take her back, and at that point... We go back to the room, and she kind of... I, I think, did they use Moira's voice in this part where she's in the closet, and she's like, Mo- Moira wouldn't sit here and take this. She would rebel. And I think it's Moira's actual voice that says, get up, get your ass up, and get off the ground oh, or something. I don't remember. I didn't notice maybe. Yeah, because she's like sitting in the... It's, you know, they're doing a shot of her facing in the closet. Yeah. And I think it's Moira's voice that says, yeah. get your ass up. And so, the next is Scrabble, round two. So we get in there, and uh, he asks, she asks, how was your trip? And it's like this totally, like, you know, yeah. benign conversation of, oh, must have been nice. And you don't know, maybe she's trying to get information, because that was part of the thing before. Was yeah, but who's trying to get, tell? But, yeah, that's a good point. Oglin's gone, so who did you even tell? And he starts talking about a Mexico trade deal and all these, you know, various egos and the... Cutting line, I thought, was, you know, you have no, no idea. idea. Like, yeah. And there was just a, <laughs> mic, a micro expression yeah. that if you caught it was like, yep. dude. <laughs> so they're playing and she, uh, he has a word challenge. And I was like, the second time I watched it, I was like, really? <laughs> really? She's your handmaid who has to have sex with you no matter what. And you're going to challenge a word and scrabble? And so, like, that just came off as kind of, you know, screw you, screw you, right? <laughs> like, if you're her, you're like... And I guess he's just trying to play it straight, yeah, I think they're you know, just trying, just to, trying to play it like it really would be. But I was like, oh, come if on, you were me. her, though, wouldn't you be really excited to get up and get the dictionary and look at books? No, you know and why? She's just no, she's no, no, no. And this is me thinking from my perspective. <clears throat> get your own damn dictionary. Yeah, I did, I did have a moment like, of like, why does she have to get exactly. the dictionary too? Jesus. I was like, God, of all the but things. But then she has I thought, like, maybe she could steal a book. And just the way he said it was, go grab the dictionary. Like he knew that she had to. There's no doubt in his mind that she has to do it. Yeah, crazy. Uh, so she goes and gets it, and that's when she sees the Latin dictionary, which you know is we're led to know that that's going to lead to her trying to get the uh, Nolites saying translated. So he goes back, and I believe Slith was the word that she spelled that he uh, challenged, and so he finds it, and it was an actual word. So she counts it, and they start getting this conversation about what happened to the last handmaid. Uh, because yeah, I thought that was really ballsy of her to be asking yes, about this. Yeah. Like, even given their 
more personal situation over Scrabble, I was really surprised to see it being brought up that way. It just seemed so risky. Right, and so she... Don't the Scrabble. Because that's the point where he translates it for her, right? And he asks how she heard that. Yeah, and she says a friend or something. Right, and um, that's when you learn that there was a previous off-red, and she asks what happened to her, and you find out that she committed suicide... And that's when the line of, I guess, her she thought her life was unbearable. And Offred makes the line, uh, says the line of, you want my life to be bearable. And he said that would be, that would be preferred or something like that. So it is like this, obviously he's trying to make it better for her. But none of it's going to be better for her. Yeah. Um, it's also better for him if people aren't offing themselves in his house, right? And some of I get this feeling. Well, you're not going like, to get a baby with. Yeah, he's like, well, made. we got to make this a little bit better because it just would be so inconvenient if we kept, yeah. you know, having these dying handmaids. Yeah, that's the impression I got as well. And right. it, I, it also made me think, because earlier in the show, you see, like, she has to stand on her, like, very, very, very tiptoes and still barely reaches the little cord for the light in the closet. That makes me wonder if the other offering used the pull string, got the pull string off the right. light to hang herself yep. in the closet. I think that's kind of alluded to in the book. I can't remember. I think so. There's something that, that she knows isn't in the room anymore. Well, I know there's, when in the book they talk the about not being picture. a ceiling fan. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, with that being the chandelier. really high. Um, so there is the beef, ble- yeah, brief flashback to the Red Center, and this is the feet-beating scene, which is ugh, oh, yeah. awful, which you said happens to Moira, because she gets caught mm-hmm. in the book, but in this scene, Moira's gone, and Offred has been taken back, and I think the ant that they it actually the yeah, that they got tied up and put in the basement yeah. is the one who gets the What is the that beater. thing that she's using? I looked it up. It's not a thing. So in the book, they just say her feet were beaten with steel cables, and so I think that was their way of making a steel cable. Okay, it was basically like a handle. Yeah, I was almost like a flogger. I couldn't tell what it like. Like were they stiff? I couldn't tell. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Like they weren't hanging, so they had to be relatively, you know, stiff to begin with. So you may got to think they were like cable or wire, you know, a thick grade that would be able to stand up on their own and just beat her feet, and then. So then his flashback, that's when he, they go to that scene first and then they come back and he's translated it for her and they have this whole thing like what happened to her, she's dead and talking about how he would prefer for her life to be better. And so she starts to leverage this against him. Badly, might we add. Like, oh, like, totally like June obviously. is a bad actress oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the show oh, because well, it was such obvious manipulation. Yeah, and so she's like, it'd be a shame if I, uh, you wouldn't want me to get, you wouldn't want me to give up like my friend. And she does like apologize again. She's like, I know I let you guys down and I know this is all my fault. So you can tell that she's leveraging this against him to get him to tell Serena Joy, let the handmaid out of the room, please, uh, or things are going to get bad. Well, in some and way, you think that's him feeling like, you're right. I do yeah. have the power to yes, let you do that. that yeah. yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that I am in the one of con- in control yes. of all of this. Yes. Like she is asking for something and also making him feel like it's his benevolence yeah. at the same time. So final scene, she walks out of the house is what we get. So we do flash back to the Red Center and it's the last scene and that we see in the Red Center, which is all the other handmaids coming in after offer has been back. She can't walk because her feet have been beaten. And they're dropping off little pieces of food kind of in solidarity from the lunchroom, which you also know they're probably not supposed to do. Well, here's where I kind of was like, I don't think that would happen because they are never unsupervised for that, a yeah, second. Yeah, that's true. And so this idea that they would just like let them all congregate and kind of share right. the stolen food. The, you know, the part of me that wants solidarity is cheering for them, but then the part of me who thinks this is not really consistent. Right. With the it's inconsistent in the unreality that we've yes, seen through the show so far. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I think... Uh, like, that's, that's a problem that people have with these kinds of... Sh- like, The Walking Dead is constantly being hit by, from fans on this. Like, that is inconsistent with the reality you have built for this the show that is completely idiot. unrealistic. So then we fl- we go back, and they're doing... The way... I read an article today talking about this last scene where all the handmaids are walking down the street, which I think in a the era we grew up in, I automatically flashed to the Reservoir Dogs scene where they're all walking down the street in slow motion. Yep. The article I read kind of made it, which obviously Reservoir Dogs references this, but the Right Stuff movie where all the astronauts are walking down and it's in slow motion, and that's kind of what this seemed like. They're all coming together in the street, and she does the voiceover of, there's an off-red before me, help me find my, she helped me find my way out. She's dead, she's alive, she is me, we are handmaids. And so they're all, that's the point where they all come together kind of at the intersection of the street, and they leave us with the final line of, Nolites te bastardes carbur 
Carborundorum bitches. bitches. Yeah, yeah, that was the best. Yeah, I was like, yeah. Did you like that? I couldn't tell. It kind of towed the line between a little cheesy. It's cheesy. I think it's cheesy, but it really made me happy just because she seemed so joyful in her thinking of this line, and that made me happy that she was feeling like that. So that wrapped up the episode, and so again, a little bit different vibe than the first three, but I thought it was good. Um, was more of a traditional narrative, not as so much extremes going on uh, as the other three, but I thought it was still, as far as the story goes, that was really well done. Any final thoughts on that? I'm looking forward to seeing where they go, just because I think now episode four made it pretty clear that the departure is is not extreme, but we're we're looking at a show that is looking and now announced to have a second season. Yes, so we didn't mention that. How will they kind of make this a show with longevity rather than one that we know where mm-hmm. the story concludes? Yes, that would be interesting, and well. we'll we should probably discuss that in future episodes. Where can they even go? Yeah. Ideas for where this could go, um, but I guess we'll have to see how the rest of the show folds out before us to figure that out. I think that's all we got for this week. We do have our interview with the. Uh, Feminist Press will have that. And, of course, we will have uh, Hardcore Lady Quotes. Um, but, yeah, it's a good episode, and so we'll see uh, the same guy directs the next one. So we'll see if it's kind of the same vibe, and we'll look forward to the rest of the episodes. So thanks for joining us on this edition of Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And our podcast is available pretty much wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, and at our website, allconsumingcontent.com. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast proudly presents Hardcore Lady Quotes. Quotes of inspiration, empowerment, and rebellion, chosen, recorded, and read by my kid. My mother always told me, hide your face, people are looking at you. I would reply, it does not matter. I am also looking at them. Malala Yousafzai. All right, we are here with Lauren Hook from the Feminist Press, which is based out of New York City at the City University of New York. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. So let's talk a little bit about the Feminist Press, and what can you tell us about it? What are the what what is your goal there at the Feminist Press? Wow. Well, we've been around almost fifty years now. I think. This year, uh, we were founded in 1970, kind of in a bit of a haphazard way. There was lots of community organizing back then, and a lot of women got together and they were like, "You know what? We should, we should have a feminist press, a press just for women in the state." And there hadn't been one yet, and our founder Florence Powell got together and got the funds and, and started it herself. And it was she was a professor, and she realized that a lot of the literature she wanted to teach in classes um, was out of print. And it wasn't because it wasn't a good book. It was because these were women writers that didn't have the same kind of legacy that a lot of the white male authors were given in terms of what American canon, right? Um, and so she started bringing these books uh, back into print. Uh, there's about nine people on staff now, and um, I'm actually trying to expand our list to about 20 books a year. So obviously, you've been around for a while. So given the I guess, evolution of the times. What has been the level of resistance you've met from the beginning to even now? In the 70s, that was sort of a, you know, a big heyday for capital F feminism, and so there was a lot of support. And then it sort of became um, a bad word, and people were like, oh, you're those man-haters, right? Like, you're, you're those bra burners. And now you see people like Beyonce, you know, very proudly uh, putting it um, as a part of their identity and into like Top Shop or Forever 21 and like get a hoodie. <laughs> um, and then even, um, I was talking to our director actually recently, Jennifer Baumgartner, and she was saying that uh, years ago um, when she was at the networking event or, or something, and so a lot of people were like, you should really change the name. <laughs> like, just, you know, advertising network feminists is just too much, you know. Right. You don't want to scare off the readers. Being around for so long, has it been important for you guys to kind of not let the trolls and not let the naysayers and the people who call you and tell you to do terrible things rock your boat too much? Just kind of stay. Don't let the bastards grind us down. There you go. Look at Um. you. Well done. (laughs) Well played. Yeah, honestly, I think you can't be in activism and you can't work in sort of polarizing fields uh, without maybe uh, getting getting off on it in a way. I think a lot of us here 
um, loves to argue, we love getting into the issues, we love to debate. Um, and honestly, some of my favorite, I'm an editor here, but my favorite parts of this job are like the Film Book Festival, for example, in September, where we, we table, we get out on the street, and we're selling our wares, and we get to see our fan base, so people who really love us, we also get to see people who come up and they're like, you, you guys are still babies, that's what you do, oh. what you're paid to do here. <laughs> and sort of, you know, opening that up for debate, I think it's a lot of fun. But it also does get exhausting, so, you know, that whole self-care thing that you see going around, you do have to have sort of a nest of love, and we do really support each other here, where, well, most of us are under 35, we're kind of like a little family, so we're here, you know, when, when the bastards get a little too rowdy. <laughs> well, excellent, that's good to hear, glad you have a good support system going there. Let's cut right into some of the issues, since I know our time is limited here. Um, so lately, we've had a lot of issues that do directly address kind of some feminist concerns. You had Bill O'Reilly's firing at Fox News because advertisers finally decided that it was, after 20 sexual harassment allegations, was too much. Uh, you have various states trying to uh, restrict access to abortion and other health care. And this week, the Trump administration announced that they would be ending the girls' education program that Michelle Obama had started. So have you guys seen an increase in readership, writing, uh, publishing opportunities, or an overall interest overall because of the current political climate? The joke in the office, the silver lining, is that maybe this will finally wake people up um, and really shake people up enough and make people uncomfortable enough to educate themselves because these types of threats have been going on for a long time um, and they're more blatant now, they're worse with Trump, um, but there's something that, you know, people like certain, certain parts of our population would have, or have continued to be threatened and would have been threatened anyway, even if Hillary had been elected. So, but I do feel like that's like the one silver lining that with a really horrible president, people are finally going to be outraged. And so how do you feel about the books being an agent of change, and what have you seen from even the things that you're publishing? Yeah, I mean, that's part of our mission statement. We say that all the time, that we, we do believe that books can shift culture. You know, and actually, we just, we just started this, uh, literary Prize last year for debut writers, women and non-binary writers of color. We published this book by Louise Merriweather, Daddy Was a Number Runner, uh, Harlem Renaissance book, classic. It was one of the first American novels to feature um, a black girl as a protagonist. And it inspired a whole generation of women writers of color, including more authors on our list currently today, like Lizette M. Davis, or even writers like Jacqueline Lipson. Um, and so we started this prize because, you know, you've seen, you've seen all the, the kind of BuzzFeed articles about diversity in publishing. Um, most people are white, most people are white men in publishing. You go to a networking event in New York and you're like, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> so there's a problem. Um, so that's something that we want to address and we do it uh, with a $5,000 prize and then we get a publishing contract with us. Um, so we just started that and we're in our second year. We're really excited to see the signature. So what current uh, feminist press books that you guys have out right now, or even some that are just from the recent past, uh, what what have you seen? Have you seen any that have had a large readership now that we're in this current political climate? And do you see any of them as possibly or hoping to cross over into kind of the mainstream, a la The Handmaid's Tale or some other you know popular political-tinged novels, they say? Yeah, I have three ideas. I think first, um, we have sort of a book on our, it's a trilogy actually, on our backlist that... Um, made me really actually want to work with them in this class back in the day um, because it is so similar to Henry's Tale. Um, it's called the Native Tongue Trilogy, and it's by Suzette Hayden Elgin, and it's a dystopian trilogy that's, you know, future, uh, where women have lost their rights to 1990 and their property, um, and they, they work as linguists, and so they, they fight the larger patriarchal order through inventing their own language. Um, but then also... We had this great nonfiction book come out earlier this year called The Crunk Feminist Collection. And um, it's this great work, and it's basically kind of like pop culture criticism essays from these three wonderful academics. They have a blog called The Crunk Feminist Collective. And they're basically, uh, they call themselves ratchet feminists, uh, homegirls who are basically, they love hip-hop, and they love that music, but they're, they're academics, they're feminists, and they want to intersect both of their worlds. And they didn't see they didn't seem to be able to do that in the academy. So they made this blog. It has like a million readership. It's great. 
And so we just published that in January. Um, and we're already reprinting it. Um, it was featured at the strand, like in the window. Definitely, there's this, everyone's wanting to you know, wake up, right? So I think it's, it's speaking to the times, especially because I believe black feminists are at the forefront of feminism today. Women of color are who we should be following. We should have been following them the whole time. So I think they are really where feminism is. So this is one of my favorite books we've published in a really long time. And it, it's the energy. It, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek, it's funny, but it's real. Um, so I, I really like that one. And then fiction-wise, we have this new imprint called Amethyst Editions, and it's for, for queer writers, it's for queer works. So far, it's been sort of experimental fiction, but we sort of want it to push past the coming out narrative, because we, we want to sort of represent queer experience, queer lives beyond that moment. Um, and our first installation of that was this past fall with a novel called Black Wave, called Michelle T. And in terms of crossover moments, for a TV show, I feel like <laughs> that one would be the best contender because um, it's very much like 90s nostalgia, throwback in San Francisco, uh, lots of drugs and sex, very funny, but then also it gets pretty meta and it gets pretty kind of futuristic and dystopian because the world is ending. And so it's sort of what everyone is doing in California as well then, including celebrities. That sounds yeah. fantastic. Because I, mys I myself am a huge sci-fi fan as well. That oh, good to hear. Yay. Yes, totally. <laughs> and so that sounds right up my alley. I'm sure there's plenty of other people listening out there that are very excited about that. So we'll put some uh, links to those three books on our website and uh, on some social media things as well so we can have people get more information about that. So let's talk about what's coming up for the future of Feminist Press. What do you guys uh, have coming out uh, you know, now and what's going on in the future? Um, well, so I'm the editor of our works in translation, so I work on a very niche aspect of literature within a niche publisher, um, and we just came out with a very exciting novel uh, in April from Argentina um, called August. It's by Nina Paula, um, and this is actually the first book that made me uh, cry on the, on the train, and in New York, you know, crying in public is like a rite of passage. Um, so <laughs> this book spoke to me from the from the beginning, and I'm so excited about it. It's a very thinking of '90s. It's kind of a millennial voice, a lot of nostalgia, but also just kind of it's all these coming of age stories, and it's kind of a very backwards coming of age. It deals with this young girl in her 20s, and her her best friend uh, committed suicide five years before, so in her teens, and it's her sort of reconciling that through this memorial service, um, and it's it's a very it's an incredible book. I, I'm, I'm more of a dark melancholy kind of literature person, so <laughs> this book's kind of right up my alley. So that just came out. Very excited for it. And then in June, um, we're publishing the over-the-top amazing author, Brontez Purnell. He's this punk rock queen icon based in San Francisco. And we're publishing his novel, Since I Laid My Burden Down, which is <laughs> a very sexy, incredible romp, sort of. Uh, this guy in San Francisco, he has to go back to his hometown in Alabama. <laughs> and he goes home and he sort of realizes how far he's come as a, as a gay man, uh, as a black man. Um, and all the, the stumbling blocks, all the, the doomed lovers, um, the, the difficult, tumultuous relationships with his parents. Um, sort of a really interesting, funny, sexy, but very heartfelt thought about deserves love and what kind of love you end up getting. Um, so that's coming out um, as well as we're reissuing this old book of his that has been fallen out of print with the incredible title, Johnny Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger. <laughs> uh, and that's coming out at the same time. So those two books, oh, I cannot wait. We're going to have a bunch of events in New York in June. He's going to be here. He's going to bring his band. It's going to be riotous and wonderful. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> All right, well, I, I know we got to run here, so I appreciate you joining us again today on May Day to Handmaid's Tale podcast. Once again, this is Lauren Hook with the Feminist Press out of the City University of New York. Senator Father Dustin, thank you so much. All right, have a great day. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this edition of May Day the Handmaid's Tale podcast. You can find us on Twitter at, at Handmade Podcast. You can find us on Instagram as well and on Facebook. On behalf of everyone here at the show, thanks and we'll see you next week.